Well, this morning we are going to be taking a break from our study through the Gospel of John. If you've been joining us with us now over the span of a couple months, we've been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John. And as advertised last Sunday, we're going to take a break from that series this Sunday and for the next two. This Sunday we want to talk about church membership because this morning we're very excited to welcome five new people into membership. I always feel a little hesitant to say it like that because all five of these people were here before I showed up. (laughs) But we're just going to pretend like they just showed up yesterday. Uh, No. Uh, So really excited about that. That's always a wonderfully affirming, exciting time when that happens. It's very exciting and just very encouraging to us as a church uh, when people say, yeah, I want to be a part of what's going on here. We want to be with you and make that public. Uh, Next Sunday is, of course, the Sunday before the election. And so we want to take a Sunday out of our year to just kind of steady our hearts in God's word before that event. I know from talking to many of you that the election... If you didn't know there's an election going on, I, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you, but uh, there is an election going on, and so a lot of us feel some anxiety. Some of us have low-grade anxiety. Some of us are feeling like this is an end-of-the-world kind of event, and I, I know that just we're all over the map as far as the election goes. But we want to come to God's Word and just kind of steady our souls in there as we go into the ballot box and, um, and as we go into whatever is coming beyond that also. And then the next Sunday after that, we're going to have a very special Sunday in which we want to introduce to you a new counseling ministry here at the church. And so looking forward to all of that. But this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, something that you may not know about me, because I'm, we're still getting to know each other even after a couple years, um, but one of the things that's true about me, and my wife can tell you this is true, is that I am a... I don't know what's the word. I guess one of my chief joys in life really is people watching. I'm a people watcher. And in fact, uh, I really sometimes kind of annoy my family because when we go out to eat at restaurants, one of my things that I love to do is study the other groups of people in the restaurant and just kind of wonder out loud, what are they doing together? Sometimes it's really obvious, like you'll see a man and woman together and you just assume They must be married or dating or something like that. But sometimes you'll see a group of like six or seven people troop into the restaurant and sit down, and I just can't let it go. (laughs) Like, are they on lunch break from work? Are they co-workers? What What are we looking at here? And in fact, once I was so bothered, I went up to them and asked. And it went about as well as you imagine. <laughs> like the cops weren't called, but it was awkward for sure. And uh, my wife was not happy particularly. The other place that I find fascinating to watch people are airports. I don't know what it is about airports, but just the most interesting people ever are going through airports. I remember once I was at the airport in Cleveland, and I saw a businessman walking down the hallway, and he just looked perfect. His shoes shined like Darth Vader's helmet. Every bit of his clothing was just perfect. It looked brand new, crisp. His hair, every bit of his hair was in just exactly the right place. And by comparison, I felt stained and wrinkled and bad about myself. But I couldn't take my eyes off this guy. He went and he sat down at the terminal and he kicked off his shoes while he's waiting for his flight. And that's when I saw it. His socks didn't match. 
He had one gold toe, one non-gold toe, and I felt better about myself because my socks matched. I love watching people. This is going to get very specific, but I think the best place for watching people on planet Earth, at least that I've ever been to, is Santa Monica Pier in Santa Monica, California. I could sit there for hours, hours, just watching every specimen of humanity go by. So many different body types. So many different strange manifestations of human beings. <laughs> it's the only place in my life where I've seen an elderly man riding a skateboard. And he had a bright green mohawk. That's the kind of stuff you see at Santa Monica Pier. It looks like other people are trying to get the Guinness Book of World Records for the most piercings or something. You see bodybuilders out there lifting weights. You know, it's really fun to watch all those different human beings. Here's the thing, though. In the Bible, here's the Jesus juke moment, right? <laughs> In the Bible, churches are compared to a body. And, the, and, and just as you see this vast array of diversity in human bodies, uh, there, some churches are just very different from one another in how they look and how they function. Uh, it seems to me that some churches have just looked beautiful, exquisitely put together. Other churches look very coordinated. I just look at them and, man, they move so well together and they make decisions so easily. What's going on over there? Other times I look at churches and they look very uncoordinated, kind of klutzy. They break things a lot, it seems. Some churches seem to have great eyes, but their ears don't work, it would seem. Or some churches seem to have something has been amputated and they don't quite move quite right. And, and you just st you study churches with the same interest that you might look on the display of human beings going by. And it really is interesting for, uh, for me to think about our church. If our church really did become a flesh and blood human being, what would State Road look like? How would we move? How would people think about us? What would we look like? It's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, we find two of the most well-traveled chapters in all of Paul's letters in the New Testament. In chapter 12, Paul is going to talk about the great diversity of gifts and the amount of faith that's given to each believer by God within the body. He famously compares the church to a body that's made up of these differing parts, but nevertheless forms a cohesive whole, one unified body. And then in chapter 13, which is commonly called the love chapter, Paul describes the importance of love in all that we do and also the essential nature and character of what love is. And most often, at least in my experience, these passages are considered in isolation from one another. But in the flow of Paul's thinking, as we move from chapter 12 to chapter 13, they are really connected. In fact, when Paul will talk about love, when he starts talking about if you have faith, if you have wisdom, if you have all, he's actually referencing back to the gifts that he mentions in chapter 12. And so chapter 12 describes the means by which the church accomplishes all that we've been called to do as a body. And chapter 13 describes the proper motive behind all that we do. So these are two really important chapters to hold together in our minds as we talk about church membership. 
It's not just a matter of what we do or what your place is, what your job might be in our, in our collective whole here. But more importantly, what is the spirit with which we are to do all things? What's the motive behind our doing? And we become a very lopsided church indeed if we are only one to the exclusion of the other, or even if we just emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. What is love without works? And what are works without love? I mean, here at State Road, we talk a lot about how we are a people committed to loving God, loving others, and love in action. That's who we are. That's what we are as a people. That's what it means to be a fully committed follower of Jesus, a sincere from the heart imitator of his example. Everybody who is truly going deeper with Christ is growing in those three areas. We are growing deeper as a lover of God, as a lover of others, and that all, the, all that love finds express, expression, concrete, practical expression in what we do, love in action. Chapter 13 makes it plain that without love, all our talking and singing is just noise. And without love, we are nothing and gain nothing. However, chapter 12 makes it equally plain that when people are genuinely motivated by love in the Christian life, that love will find concrete, practical expression in our actions. And here's the truth. If you're a Christian today, you have been gifted uniquely. God, in making you new, crafted you in such a way to worship Him through service. We've all been gifted in different ways. We've all been uniquely designed by our Creator God to fit a needed spot within this church family. God is purposeful, and your presence here in our church family is not willy-nilly. It's not an accident. It's not serendipitous chance. You're here because God has placed you here and because you're needed. One of the greatest joys in the Christian life is awakening to a sense of our God-given design. How do we fit within the overall body? What part do we play in the great cause the great central cause of taking souls that are far off and bringing them along to the place where they are now fully committed followers of Jesus. This is what Christian service is. This is really what love in action is. It's giftedness motivated by love. To embrace chapter 12 without chapter 13 or 13 without 12 would be like a bird with one wing. Action but no love, love but no action. To such a person, their understanding of the Christian life would be incomplete. But we know that usefulness, function, and power in the life of a believer is not found in the embrace of half of a truth. Like a bird with one wing, such a person would have difficulty obeying the upward call of Christ. They'll never soar to new heights of obedience, joy, and kingdom usefulness. You can only go so far on a work ethic. And you can only go so far if you feel great passion but are lazy in the Christian life. I like the quote, I don't remember who said it now, but uh, it's not an original quote, certainly. Somebody much smarter than me once said, the artist is nothing without the gift, and the gift is nothing without hard work. And it's true, too, that in the Christian life, there's things that we need. I think I've known people who had a sincere, warm heart for others, for God, but mysteriously just never seemed to act on it. And they can't go long without that kind of turning septic spiritually. It doesn't work. 
And I've known others who just throw themselves into church stuff, but it seemed to me, and maybe even this is true of me in certain seasons, that I struggle with the love part. Uh, I think some of us, if if we look at our own lives, just in different seasons, maybe both of those are true. We're just, I'm full of good intentions, but I don't seem to act on them. Or I'm full of actions that are absent of any sort, anything looking like love. I'm just kind of working hard for what? There's a trap here, but the full Christian life is found in embracing both of these chapters together. And this morning, as we welcome five new people into membership here at State Road, we want to give some thought to the biblical imagery found in chapter 12 around the church, about the church as a single body made up of these differing parts. Every person in the body of Christ is designed in a, u- a unique way to manifest something of the Spirit of God that no one else can. So we find Paul writing this, chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on these parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We'll stop right there. One of the first things to see in Paul's description of the church as the body of Christ is the way he alternates between highlighting how different we are from one another, and then, sometimes in the same breath, he switches directions and describes how we are all the same. This tension between our differentness and our sameness is summed up neatly, I think, in verses 4 through 7. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, that's differentness, but the same spirit, that's the same. There are varieties of service, different, 
but the same Lord, the same. There are varieties of activities, different, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone, same. To each is given, different, the manifestations of the Spirit for the common good, the same. He continues in verse 12 to compare and contrast difference and sameness. In verses 12 and 13, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and are all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. By emphasizing in tandem both our differentness and our sameness, Paul is making it plain that when we come to Christ, we don't lose our individuality so much as we discover the purpose for which we were uniquely made an individual. We find that slot into which we slide. All the tumblers click into place and we realize our fit, our design. It was all on purpose. And our individual part is part of a much larger entity. We discover the origins of what makes a person uniquely themselves, the Holy Spirit. We find the cause that is greater than each individual, but which each individuality serves as an essential part of the whole. So we all recognize the same source of our uniqueness, the same Lord who commands us on our dissimilar missions. And we all live, all of our hearts beat for the same goal, that we are serving and moving toward in different ways. We have diverse and varied parts of one body whose head is Christ, and this is the church. About four years ago, my brother Joel, who's a pastor down in Vermont, uh, wrote a piece entitled, In Praise of a Strange Tribe, in which he reminisced about the church he and I grew up in outside Washington, D.C. I just wanted to read to you this morning what he wrote. I was thinking about it this week, and I was like, well, maybe I can kind of change his words and make it sound like mine, but then what if he hears my sermon sometime? That wouldn't work. I better just quote him. <laughs> he said the things I want to say. He said, there was the homeless, he's talking about our church that we grew up in right outside Washington, D.C. He said, there was the homeless cab driver who worshipped with manic intensity and who sometimes slept in the church the bachelor patent officer in his 60s who lived alone with his mother and who sometimes raised his hand during the sermon because he had a question, the foreign man who looked and sounded funny because he'd been in a car accident as a young man and had been left for dead on a gurney in the hospital with a sheet pulled over his head until someone noticed his toe twitching. And there were others, the biracial couple, the angry old man, the lady whose job it was to dispense the punch and who treated the clumps of sherbet floating in the punch like they were a very big deal. To be fair, as a young kid in church, I thought the clumps of sherbet were a very big deal, almost as big a deal as Jesus. That's sacrilegious. Joel wrote it, I didn't. Just kidding. This cast of characters, this mishmash of the quietly faithful and the loudly colorful people who made up the church of my youth were the weird tribe that God used to establish the trajectory of my life. They weren't the crew I would have chosen, but that's kind of the point. My father, who was also the pastor, was raising his family in a hostile urban culture, 
And he really wanted us to know that we belonged to a tribe, to a countercultural movement that swam against the prevailing current we experienced at school and on television. He didn't just get his family into the house of God. He brought the people of God, even the funky and strangely redeemed people of God, into his family's house. Mexican immigrants made fragrant tamales in our kitchen, and unassuming bachelors discussed the Bible in our living room, and somewhere along the way, I did the opposite of going native. I went non-native. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked about so much in the Gospels became real to me. I took my citizenship there seriously, and I decided that I need never be ashamed of my fellow citizens in that blessed kingdom. In his letter to the misfit believers in what is modern-day Turkey, the Apostle Peter said to them, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You cannot overstate how radical that statement is and how much power it has to change the course of a life. And brothers and sisters, you are my weird tribe. (laughs) And I am so glad to have you guys in my life and that you've allowed me to be a part of your life. And yeah, the, the church is not uh, maybe how we would have drawn it up in our own wisdom, but very often I find that it's way, way better. I, I didn't even know what I needed until I met you. That's just the truth. And so there's some things that we need to recognize and know when we talk about a church family, our body. Like all bodies especially those that have been around for a while, we have our fair share of aches and pains. (laughs) And Paul diagnoses two sources of these aches and pains. I want to talk about these this morning. But you know, with the election coming uh, years ago, I I just had to decide in my own mind that I was not going to pour my passions into the pot. I I think just success demands singleness of purpose. Coach Lombardi once said that. I think it's true. And coming up in America, I think like many of you, I felt a great passion for politics. I think we all do. I would read the paper. I had informed opinions, and I was very passionate about them. I still am an engaged citizen with political opinions. But I would just say this, that success demanded at some point that I decide which pot I would pour my passions into. I no longer live for the question, what kind of country will I give my kids? I just can't do that. I now really worry about this question. What kind of church am I going to give my kids in the midst of whatever country is going to be here? I find I can actually do something about that. And I think that I don't have much control, really, over what the country will be 10 years from now. I have some control because of the framers of our Constitution. I have a vote. You have a vote. Let's all exercise it. Let's vote our conscience. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let our primary passion be, what kind of church are we going to give our kids? What kind of people are we going to be, a people within a people? There's that strange tribe, and this will shape people much more than some of those other more transient influences in a person's life. I'm really grateful just as a dad that God has brought my kids to this strange tribe. <laughs> I really think that here they found aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters, and, and I'm really grateful for the church family that my family's a part of. But with all that in mind, let's talk here for just a second 
about these two pains that can exist within the church body that Paul does point to and diagnose. In verses 14, we might say, okay, here are the, here are the two. I'll give you the brief synopsis. The first one is the one who says, I can't be who I want to be. I'm useless. <laughs> I'm not significant, and I'm not an important part of the body. So what's the point? The second ones are full of self-importance, and they look at other parts, and they say, I don't need you, right? These are the two problems that can exist in the body. In verses 14 through 19, Paul kind of humorously describes a scenario where some parts of the body are jealous of how prominent and important other parts are, while they feel unnecessary, unimportant, and maybe even useless. And then in verse 21 through 24, he describes again, somewhat humorously, some of the body parts saying to the other parts that they don't need them. So in the first case, some body parts might be tempted to feel they're not needed, and in the second case, they're saying, we don't need you. And the medicine that Paul prescribes to alleviate these two different pains is to point out that it is God who has arranged the parts of the body. In verses 18, he says to those who feel useless, unnecessary, and insignificant in their gifting, he says this, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And in verse 24, he says the same thing to those who are tempted to think too highly of themselves. He says it's God who has composed the body. If we say we are useless, that we're unimportant, that we're insignificant in the body of Christ, or at least in the local church body that we belong to, what we are actually saying in our hearts is we're not only saying no to the idea of the body, more generally, that we're part of a whole, we're not only saying no to that, but we're actually saying no to God as the designer of that body. We don't trust Him. By saying that we don't, we're useless, we're insignificant, we're unimportant, what we're really saying is that we don't think God is wise or good or concerned with our joy In the way he has made us and arranged us within the body of Christ, he is negligent, he's inattendant, he's uncaring. In verse 11 it says, speaking of the various gifts that exist within the body, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Those words, as he wills, are very important to understand in this moment. We see the same in verse 18. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. It's God's will and God's desire that has arranged us within the body. And I think that one of the things to know about God is that there is coming a day where there will be a great reversal of fortunes. God and his economy of value speaks a lot about a coming day where things will be revealed. And it could be that in the scheme of State Road Advent Christian Church, your humble embrace of a behind-the-scenes calling will count for more than Josh Tate's spittle-flecked diatribes from behind the pulpit. Tell me which is greater. God doesn't say that the one is greater than the other. 
Really what is great is the spirit with which we embrace our unique calling, whether it be prominent or hidden, known or unknown, perceived as significant or perceived as unnecessary. If you open up your home in friendship to another in obedience to God and you give your all to that ministry, that will be counted as very significant on the last day. I think of Jesus outside the treasury when he looked at those who gave vast amounts out of their abundance, this, this very prominent giving of money that was seen by all and perceived as a great act, and then the widow who very humbly put in her two mites. And Jesus said, I tell you, she gave more than they did. There is a reversal of fortunes coming. There is an economy of values that we need to see as a spiritual reality that surrounds all that we do in the life of the church. Very often what's deemed significant or prominent among human beings is not so in God's eyes. And very much that happens in the secret place is given greater weight and significance by our God than that which happens in the open. These are all things to keep in mind. And maybe you don't like your calling. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're not yet aware of your calling. But I do, I do think it's important to recognize that spiritual reality. And the second attitude that can cause our body to hurt, the one that looks at other members and says, this whole church thing would work better if they weren't here. This seems to me to come out most in the midst of disagreement and conflict within the church. I don't know exactly, I forget now how many years State Road has been in operation. But I'm willing to bet through over the, is it over 100 years? Yeah. I'm willing to bet over that span of 100 years, more than once has somebody driven home from a board meeting thinking that church would work better if so-and-so wasn't there. <laughs> that has happened. And this is the same attitude that says, I don't need you. It would be better if you weren't here. One of God's gifts of grace to us are brothers and sisters who are not like us. Verse 22, it says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Please notice the very politic, careful language Paul uses here. It says, The parts of the body that seem to be weaker not are weaker, but seem to you to be weaker. He's recognizing something in human frailty here. That very often when we're on opposite sides of some disagreement in the life of our church, we tend to look at the other side and say, well, they're the weaker side. They're the ones who don't understand in a full way the fullness of what God would call us to, what the Bible is saying, what we ought to be doing as a church. They're the weak link. <laughs> and Paul here says... The parts of the body that seem to you to be weaker, I'm telling you, they're indispensable. Don't say in your heart about them, this would be better if they weren't here. I wish their voice wasn't at the table. It is uh, something, the Bible is a very real document. It deals with the very real stuff of doing life together. And this is one of those moments. In verse 25, he says this, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Look at how Paul defines the opposite of division. He says that there may be no division in the body, 
And then you would think he would say, so that everybody thinks the same and gets along hunky-dory and everybody is voting the same on everything. That's not what he says, though. He says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This is the opposite of division, not sharing the same ideas or being in complete agreement, but caring for one another, looking upon one another as a necessary part of the whole, even when we disagree, loving one another and celebrating their presence in your life and your church family. Uh, One of the verses that uh, I was years ago part of a membership Uh, a leadership development kind of a study at a church I was a part of. And one of the verses we had to memorize over the course of that study was 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? (laughs) I think there's this uh, sense in which we as Christians look at our giftings as an expression of our own remarkableness. My mother was right. I am special, right? And what Paul is saying here is that when you say, who sees anything different in you, what do you have that you didn't receive? To the ability, to the extent that I am at all gifted, can I boast about that? Not really. God gave me that ability, That's a gift from him. It's not something I generated through sheer dent of hard work. It's not something I conjured by my own wisdom. He says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, why do you boast as though you made yourself who you are? Why do you boast about your great singing voice? Which I know you all know I have a great singing voice. (laughs) No. No, we all, this is the cure. We all have to look to God as the one who composed the parts, who gave the gifts, who gave the commands, who gave us a common goal. I am, uh, as I've told you before, a lifelong fan of the newly minted Washington football team. They have changed their name. And I have had over my my Washington football team jerseys are stained with tears because it has been a long, difficult road for me and my people. <laughs> uh, but I do know this, every once, pretty much every season, there's some inter-locker room squabble. Uh, so-and-so isn't doing their job. Recently, our starting quarterback was demoted to third string, which is an annual event at the Washington football team. And he instantly went out and deleted or unfriended the, the, the team on social media. He stopped following them. And it's made it into the papers and stuff. Now let me ask you this. Do I care particularly that Dwayne Haskins, our new third-string quarterback, gets along well with the front office? Am I really worried that they're like getting lunch together and being pals? Not really. What do I want? I want them to win. <laughs> I want them to get out there and play hard to say, same team, ah, yep, let's do it. Let's remember, let's keep the paramount thing, our objectives as a team. And so when we talk about having the same goal as a church, I mean, man, how important is it to know that we are a people called to make disciples? 
that we love God, that we love others, that we love in action. And we might have different disagreement, different visions of how to achieve that. We might have different votes that we come to, but we're all in agreement about the goal. And that is a great unifying power in the life of a church, I find. And I've been really blessed over my time here at State Road that even in those times where I have had disagreements with people, I just have always had the confidence that those folks were properly motivated, that they wanted the same things to happen here and flourish here that I did, and that their voice at the table was a needed counterbalance to me, perhaps. And maybe even when they were wrong, which they certainly were, uh, I just needed to love and care for them, right? (laughs) Right? So uh, we just need to love one another, to keep the goal in mind, and to know that it is God who has brought you here. We need each other. We need you. Becoming a member of a local church is an important, beautiful, and biblical thing to do. Membership makes explicit those things that are often just implied in Christian life. Membership is a formal request for help in living the Christian life, and it is a pledge on the part of those who are becoming members that they will be that kind of friend to you, their church family. I think when people come down to the front, as we're going to do in just a minute, and they, they declare that they are members of this church, one of the things to realize is happening in this moment is they are asking you to help them live the Christian life, to be nosy. <laughs> if you see them wandering, they are giving you permission to pursue them and confront them in love. That's happening in this moment. And they are saying, we're going to be those kind of friends to you too. We're going to be traveling companions. We're all stumbling our way home to God together, and we need help to get there in one piece. Membership is all about not being ashamed to be associated with Christ or his people, this weird tribe. It's a statement out loud in public, you're my people, and I'm I'm with you. Membership is about declaring one's intent to release their gifts here among us. And membership is not so much about something being conferred upon them as it is a giving of themselves to us, their church family. And most importantly, membership is about a community built on covenant. In the Bible, when God enters into relationships, when he invites us to enter into relationships with one another, usually that happens on the basis of a covenant. We make a certain uh, promise to one another that guides and binds our community together. 